Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. International Culinary Center, and today I'm not out at Roberta's, unfortunately, but I'm very excited because my guest today is Tori McPhail, one of the great food cities of America. Um, and if you know Commander's Palace, um, he has been called. He was um, he won the James Beard Best Chef of the South, and he won the Great American Seafood Cookoff in 2009, the number 16th Best Chef in America by the Daily Meal in October this year or last year. He was the James Beard Rising Star Chef nominee when he was a pup. And um, and Commander's Palace is one of the uh, restaurants in New Orleans. But I think from a foodie point of view, uh, one has to say it's amazing. And I think it's because they find talents like Tori. So we're going to hear that story. Welcome, Tori. Well, um, welcome to New York. It's a little cold today. Uh, taking right. you New Orleans yeah. people. But you're from Washington, right? Yeah, Washington. So, so tell me, uh, how does a... Ferndale, Washington, citizen, get yeah. to be the chef at Commander's Palace. Did, yeah. Born and raised? In- yeah, born and raised in a tiny little farming town in Ferndale, Washington. And Ferndale, there, I think growing up as a kid, I think we maybe had two stoplights in the, in the whole town and maybe like 4,000 people. And so I, uh, everybody was either in a dairy farm or into oil, gas, or aluminum since we're on the Puget Sound, two hours north of Seattle, right near the Canadian border. And I guess our hallmark would be raspberry. And so, I'm are they home. delicious? They're amazing. But it, we pick all of our stuff and move into big 50 gallon drums wow. for, for ocean spray. Right? So, we pick them, and then, you know, even as like a, a young teenager, um, I'd be driving the tractor, and all the clean fruit would go into a plastic line uh, barrel. And then, uh, late, late in the afternoon, uh, driving all these big barrels of raspberries to the cannery. And, uh, what was the smell like? Jam or... Are you sick of it now? So back then I didn't want to have anything to do with raspberries, <laughs> or strawberries, or any kind of fruit. We'd, you know, pick all the weeds, we'd, you know, tie up all the berries, we'd do the irrigation, we'd run all the stuff. It's not glamorous, it's not cool work on it, saying, wow, that really helped to shape and form my life, and I'm really grateful. In what way? Well, if, if you teach a kid as it comes up to sprout, and you take care of it, you nurture it, Right, and you watch the thing grow, and all of a sudden it starts to produce really good fruit. Magically, um, fruit just tastes better. And so when you go to cook with it, you've got you know a couple of pints, and you go to make jam or pie or jelly. Gravity that it so would. So were you were you cooking as store. a teenager? Yeah, we cook all the time. Um, none of the rest of the family was in the restaurants. So my mom ended up being in the um, our local grocery store, 
And so not only we did we kind of grew up on you know on the farm thing, we got to run around wild and actually see like food in the store and how people kind of. I think that was kind of pivotal as well. Like we didn't know what you know different funky stuff was from the Pacific Rim, unless we found it in the grocery store in Washington State. So um, you're on the Puget Sound. Yeah. What kind of relationship did you have with yeah. the fish? So we would, um, and we got to the point what where we... What kind of fishing? Deep sea fishing? Um, there in the Puget Sound, uh, I don't know if you call it deep sea fishing necessarily because it's all protected, but there's four big uh, species of salmon that we go after. And then we'd have like um, rockfish, rock cod. We start uh, catching sharks as a kid. It's not like we would eat them too often, but it's just fun to have something to tug on the end of your line. And you catch a lot more sharks in that peat. Anything that could be shiny or a little smelly or any kind of fish that's an oily fish. Yeah. Yeah, sink some of those down to the bottom, you know, kind of jig for it, and all of a sudden, big shark. What kind of it. sharks are they? Right, yeah. so like four or five feet long. And we would just call them dogfish huh. or sand and what sharks. What do they taste like? They taste. It's not great, but you fry it, dip it in ketchup. It's got to be good. <laughs> That's all we did with it. Okay, so then you go off to culinary school? Yeah. I knew from a very early age that being a chef is exactly what I wanted to do. Although, aside from my brother, nobody else was in the restaurant business. And food was very central to the way we grew up. Um, whether it was like um, fishing in the summertime or be um, hunting for wild game in the wintertime. We were all just about the great outdoors experiencing growing up in the Pacific Northwest. And so I got with the school counselors and, um, you know, they gave me some pretty good advice on what being a chef was really all about. You work on the holidays, you work on special occasions when everybody else is running around, whether it's 4th of July. There's a lot of dedication that goes into it. So I was going to culinary school. I worked in my first hotel. and It was in Bellevue, Washington, um, just a stone's throw away from Microsoft. And the amount of sophisticated people that would come through all the restaurants and the hotels and sit down and dine. So, you know, although it's very, very simple seafood, those people have a distinguished enough palate to really understand right from wrong what really good cooking is really all about. Um, Bill Gates had come in a couple of times, but it's not like, it's not like French laundry or per se food. You know what I mean? Good quality stuff. Um, season well, but it doesn't have to be too, too fancy. And that's the way most people eat up there, you know? I think that's the way most people eat. Anyway. Um, it definitely put me so on the right track. So who are your most of, let's say, what you think mm -hmm. are the most important elements in being a chef? Was it in culinary school? Was it afterwards yeah. where you think your formation came about? Well, I think it was a very, very pivotal time. You know, as you get out of high school and you're still a teenager, uh, my parents were bright enough to say, hey, look, you know, we don't know anything about restaurants. Tori, why don't you try to sit down and get more advice? Because I was like in the band and like running around, enjoying the great outdoors. But in culinary school, it became very easy. The culinary advisors and some of the trusted um, instructors, they said, hey kid, you know, you're graduating at the top of your class. Come here, sit down for a second. You've got some potential in your bones. And I said, look, I want to be a great chef as quickly as humanly possible. A culinary instructor from Seattle. His name is Stan Holly, mm -hmm. right? Still around uh, Seattle area, mm -hmm. and uh, he said, "Look, I don't want to see you flounder, right? And and not really live up to your potential." And he says, "The first thing you want to do is just get out of town." So right? San Francisco wasn't an option because they have some phenomenal yeah. restaurants. Yeah, they got great, great restaurants there. It's not like immersing yourself in a culture uh -huh. that really. Um, looks at chefs differently. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents originally like, man, you want to understand the differences between that and a cook. Mm -hmm. And even like 25, 30 years ago, you know, Emerald wasn't on TV yet. Food Network hasn't been born. Chefs were, you know, you, you would run a restaurant and that's kind of it. But we didn't have like magazines like you would today. And it wasn't a revered uh, 
Mm-hmm. And so thankfully, I said, look, you know, I just really want to know how to cook. And, you know, if you can cook in New Orleans and you can be successful, you can travel anywhere in the world. That's what we do. We all eat three times a day. Mm. Um, so thankfully, I took their advice. I booked a plane ticket. And me and my buddy moved down to New Orleans when we were 19. And the drinking age was 19 at that time. Right? Did you ever show up to work? I did show up to work every day and worked work my tail yeah. off. I want the experience. I'll do anything I possibly can. I'll eat top ramen every day. I'll have like mounds of food for famine meal that we you know feed our staff every day. Um, even, even to back up, you know, one of the Stan Holly, the culinary instructor, is like, look, man, why don't you learn more about what's happening? And so I walked over to the school library and they had this like tiny little New Orleans section standing in front of a pot of crawfish like this. Standing over it, and this guy had a funny name, it was something like Emerald Lagasse. And that's the first time I've ever heard of Emerald at culinary school, trying to research what New Orleans is all about. Wow. And had no idea that I would follow in his footsteps. So was the Food Network yeah. on at that time? Um, Food Network was just being born in uh, the early 90s, mm-hmm. I think 93. Yeah. So which, and that's the exact time that I, that I got to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And so I missed Emerald by maybe a, a year and a half at Commander's. Wow. So and now, now tell me, what did it live up to the hype? Um, you know, I, I thought I really knew how to cook and I understand what good flavors were all about. But coming down to New Orleans, I didn't know a thing about what great food really was. Um, and so, well, he you hired, a chef at Commanders. At Commanders, Palace. yeah. Uh, he hired me to um, work in the garbage. And so I started appetizers, charcuterie, first and second course tastings. And... So he hired me in there, and I kind of got my feet wet a little bit up through the ranks uh, pretty quickly. So you've been at Commanders most of your... Um, most of it. I've been... Most of your professional life. Yeah, on and off for more than 20 years. So um, explain to us sensation yeah. is and the culture. It's a real mm-hmm. family business, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. t- tell us about that. Before Hurricane Katrina... Commander's was the longest continually operating restaurant in American history, built back in 1880. And there's many restaurants that were older, but for whatever reason, through like fire, natural disaster. So uh, Katrina for us was that type of a closure. But it's really been something that's been very, very special, very pivotal to the city. You know, the Brennan, a tremendous brand, they really didn't start to uh, push the envelope of fine cuisine until they bought Commander's Palace. But really they had better roots, Back in like the 50s when they started um, opening up restaurants. The Bucure restaurant on Bourbon Street was their, their first one. And then decided to um, uh, open Brennan's on Royal Street. Um, and that really kind of launched them. So it's a great, great family for sure. And, you know, I would not be sitting here where I am today had it not been for Ella Brennan, Dottie, and then T and Lally today. So we're going to take a short break here and we're going to come back and... You're going to teach me the difference between Cajun and Crave. <laughs> that could be another chapter for sure. Okay, hang in there. This is Leaving by Dead Stars on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. 
She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You know, I think in New Orleans, you think of city food. So more refined, a little more wealthy, a little more richer. And uh, Cajun food is really more like country food, so very, very simple. And uh, I think of Cajun food as being like super salty, smoky, um, spicy. Um, so when you go to kill a 200-pound pig, right, and then, you know, the kid's running around. Now, if you're not going to eat the entire thing at that point, you have to have some means of preserving that animal. And so there was born with a lot of the German immigrants that were settling Louisiana at that time. So those folks brought us to like andouille sausage and tasso. Cajun food's more like country food, very simple, rustic. And uh, Creole food's more refined, fine dining. So how many years now have you been living in New Orleans? Um, so I guess like 20. And has your day-to-day eating changed from when you lived in Washington? You know, life for me revolves around the tip of a spoon. Right or the tines of a fork. Um, for the Beard Awards, I was here in May, and I think we ate at like 25 places in like four or five days. Grabbing buddies, we'll sit down and have an app somewhere, and then we'll sit down, and uh, I think the night after the Beard Awards, I sat down and had um, a tasting menu at Le Bernardin, and then sat down at Momofuku Co, and had another 12 courses. That's all, that's all in one evening. Yeah, tell me, in the eyes yeah. of a chef, when you do that, mm-hmm. What are you looking at? What are you looking for? What are you tasting? As like me. Yeah. Oh, we're, this is New York City in the background, our old building. It's, it's, <laughs> we're in polar vortex territory. Um, so, so tell me, what, you yeah. know. Now, we have an opportunity these days to travel a tremendous amount. And every time I sit down in the restaurant, for me, it is a whole experience. It's not just the cocktails. It is the hospitality. It's the lighting. It's how comfortable the chair is. Is it supposed to be comfortable? Is it not supposed to be comfortable? You know, chairs should not be comfortable so people don't relax and you turn over the uh, the restaurant quicker. There's just it's kind of let's how give life you a bad you know sitting experience. I mean, yeah. that is that. Yeah, hmm. I've heard of some restaurant tours, and as I'm sitting here, cold out. Some restaurant tours where they say, "Look, we choose to serve bad coffee so people don't linger." And we get the table back quicker. True story. Ooh. Every single nuance of hospitality and every single nuance of, of uh, every aspect of a restaurant. What do you remember from the Le Bernardin tasting menu? Can you remember when you've had 25-plus yeah. uh, yeah. dishes in a night? Really, I think Eric Repair's food is all about, um, it's all about refinement, but it's all about fresh, and it's really all about the main ingredient. Easily one of the finest seafood restaurants in the world. And so it's the freshest of the fresh. And as you sit down and eat a piece of striped bass, you want to be able to taste that soulful, amazing cooking. 
great technique. Really, the, the star of the show really needs to be the main ingredient, which would be the striped bass. So did you go back to New Orleans, and what yeah. influence did you put on your menu? From yeah, that? I think every time we travel, we gain perspective on what other chefs are doing and turning that into more of a successful brand. And, you know, New Orleans, we're, we're known for Creole food, we're known for Cajun food in the country. Obviously, great, amazing, fresh local ingredients, but it's all about the levels of seasoning as well. And so if we can, you know, wrap all the great flavors of Louisiana around it, then that's an experience that, you know, folks will... will, will. So what's your most favorite dish you've created? Mm, you know, I think, it's, uh, I think it changes all the time. So the menus change and tip over uh, almost every day, twice a day, depending on what's coming in right out of the field. Uh, I told you have a standard menu, though. A handful of dishes that will, versions of it will remain the same. Okay, but all the rest of the menu is 100% in flux. And I told myself years ago, I'm like, look, you know, I'm not going to, uh, you know, just have basics and we're only going to tweak this and that. If we can only get fresh peas in from the garden, and then we'll go on to strawberries, and we'll go on to butternut squash, and we'll go on to, you know, something else. There's just so many great foods out there in the world that you'd hate to have uh, stationary. So I always like to play and kind of keeps it interesting. So with Commander's being such a iconic and long-standing restaurant, Mm-hmm. You don't hear about Paul Prudhomme anymore, even right. in the history books or people referring to that. Yeah. But I remember in the in the eighties, mm-hmm. you know, Emerald went down there, but Emerald's from Rhode Island. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Some parts of Jersey, I think, but he's kind of got that. Uh, that no, he's that. from the he's from uh, up there. Yeah, he's not he's, from the Jersey Shore. No, no, he's not. No, he's. I believe he's from up here somewhere. Yeah, 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 we've got to give it. But, um, but well, wh- what is the culinary? Like, are you all adding to it? Yeah. Um, now, for me, I um, study a lot on what uh, Louisiana food. And when you open a window back in time and you understand the history of Louisiana food, you know, and I don't feel like anybody has you know, the right to be creative and start smashing all these weird things together if they don't understand the, the rules. And I think one of the trademarks of Commanders is constantly evolving what Creole food can be. You know, we serve great turtle soup, we serve great bread pudding souffle, but everything else constantly changes all the time. If we have fresh summer corn, maybe we'll, these days we'll do corn five or six different ways in one plate. Next thing. It's just constant um, tweaking of the menus to make it more interesting. Hmm. So, um, what makes yeah. New Orleans food today New Orleans food? You know, um, a bit of time at Commanders. You know, starting with Paul Perdome back in the 70s. You know, he was the first, really, I think one of America's first celebrity chefs. He's the only chef to, to ever really get written up in Rolling Stone magazine. Him and his wife Kay decided that they're going to take the show on the road. And so they opened up the first Cajun restaurant in Los Angeles. And it was America's first pop-ups. But instead of lasting like one day a week or for like three or four days, they did that for like three or four months. What is this Cajun food? Why does this food taste so good? And so Paul is from Lafayette, so he brought all that great Louisiana flavor to Los Angeles. This is successful. Now we're going to go to Chicago. And did the exact same thing. This wasn't sort of a promotion for commanders? No. Or? It, was, it was really kind of Paul's deal about um, blackening spice. Mm-hmm. And you know the story that Ella Brennan likes to say is, "Hey, look, Paul. You know, there's this trash fish. It's called a redfish. You know, Commander's menu. You know, what would you want to do with it?" And he's like, "Well, you know, in Cajun country, 
you know, uh, redfish isn't a trash fish. That's something that we really like. And he says, look, you know, we would, you know, catch redfish in the morning. We'd, you know, fire up a bonfire and he would get it really, really hot on the side of the bayou. Wow. He'd butcher <laughs> that fish. I could just see this. This yeah. is wonderful. Yeah, they'd be hanging out uh-huh. and he would sear a piece of fish very hot, but it was all about nice seasoning and a fresh fish. Sear it very hot, blacken on one side, maybe just some crushed lemon, and that was blackened fish. So he'd fish. bring his seasoning with him. He'd bring his seasoning with him, and that's the very first time the Cajun and Creole food meshed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is this oh, written yeah. up anywhere? Is this in the uh, commander's book? That Yeah, know? I'm sure there's, there's versions of it. For 1969, Cajun food was never, ever, absolutely ever allowed in the city of New Orleans. It was very much taboo. Cajun food was really looked down on. We're, we're never going to eat crawfish. I can't believe you'd ever have redfish on a menu. And Ella was like, look, you need to cook it for me. And at that point, they really started mashing Cajun and Creole food together. And, you know, now you go to Chili's and you're going to find blackened chicken quesadillas, right? You're going to have blackened shrimp, whatever. Okay, we've got to take another break. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Kill Me in the Summertime by Dead Stars on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. just telling us about when Cajun and Creole first mesh. Tell me about the Brennans. When you have a restaurant that's so heavily identified with mm-hmm. family, and I, I've met Ella Brennan, how does the family interact with the chef? What does it do to the menu? How much freedom do you have? You know, I, I gain a lot out of the family just because we all work really hard and we always work side by side. Every single day of the week, seven days a week, lunch and dinner, there is a member of the Brennan family that takes a shift at the restaurant, um, I guess tries to refine our brand of hospitality. So whether it's teaching a new back waiter you know, how to bus properly or you know, do some basic things or grabbing a sous chef and say, look, you know, way back when the flavors had a little bit more poignancy. Um, there's a Brennan constantly driving that restaurant. And I don't think there's another better restaurant family as the Brennans. So how did they get into the business? You know, um, as I understand it, and we're going back a long, long way, Ella's siblings, her, uh, I guess her cousins, right, and her uncles started way back in the 40s, okay? And after that, once they got everything kind of set up, they ran the first establishment to actually run. So she was kind of like the general manager, 
So she was in charge of ordering the liquor. Um, those restaurants and the bar was very successful. The old absinthe house is still there today. But they decided to step their game up a bit. Brennan's restaurant on Royal Street. Okay. So um, really at that point they started refining New Orleans food, kind of like seared speckled trout with crab meat on top and some hollandaise. And they really wanted to improve their game a bit. You know, way back then it was basically one town that had 20 recipes. So Ella, was she the daughter then of, or the wife? Uh, niece, I believe, to like Owen and Pip Brennan. Uh-huh. I believe so, something like that. There's a lot of Brennans on Royal Street, but she was definitely one of the cousins and the niece of those folks. And so she, alongside with the rest of the family, had to take New Orleans food up to the next level. And so... Were they a New, a New Orleans family way back? Yeah. And uh, they had friends and musicians in Chicago. And they said, hey, look, you know, what are some, some of the things that are happening, right? They found, like, the big opportunity maybe for, like, breakfast and lunch. And so Ella decided, hey, look, you know, why don't we really try to kick off brunch, Okay, so she got with these great Chicago jazz musicians and said, hey, look, why don't we do our own version of brunch, right? But we're going to do ours jazz brunch, okay, because everybody got to the clubs after dinner and that was kind of their, their thing. But they wanted to bring people into the restaurant earlier on. And so um, they had jazz bands, jazz, mus- jazz musicians in the restaurant, and they decided to serve liquor before noon on Sundays. That's my Ella. That's it. <laughs> uh, St. Louis Cathedral right there in the heart of the French Quarter, they were furious. They're like, I can't believe that you're going to serve liquor, right? And so they stuck to the guns. They're like, look, you know, we want to do this. Nobody else in town's doing it. I think this is a special deal. It's not just, you know, for drunkards because they're tipsy from the night before. And so these were people that would walk right out of St. Louis Cathedral on a Sunday afternoon, whether it was, um, you know, uh, gin fizz or... Uh, These days we would call them an eye-opener, and it was perfectly fine eventually for those people to feel very comfortable doing that. But it was taboo for quite some time, right? And they start to jazz it up a little bit. They surround that with really good music and great tasty cocktails, and jazz brunch is born. Now you can find that all over the country. So now tell me, as a chef, what do you think of all this culinary technology? I mean, we're talking history and Cajal, employ um, new... Technology and how do yeah. you do it? And what what do you what do you think about it? Yeah, it just makes food fun and it makes it more exciting, and um, it's fascinating. You know, you go go to great restaurants like Alinea, understand what those guys have in their head, a couple little things from that, apply it to Creole food, and it just makes a person's dining experience just that much more intriguing. Mm. So I think it definitely has a place. It's not going away. Mm. Uh, you know, to your point earlier, I don't know how many. You know, I think some folks just wouldn't get it. Yeah. Um, but it makes our food a lot more exciting. I love it. It's fun. So we opened up Sobu about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And in the a, W Hotel? Exactly. It's in the, mm-hmm. the lobby of the W Hotel. And it slammed it into the lobby of a W. Um, that's kind of what Sobu is really all about. It's exciting. We take a lot of risks. And it's just a fun, hip little restaurant. And it's right. doing well. Tell us some of the dishes that you get We um, really kind of been pushing together... Uh, Creole Caribbean and so there's a lot of those little fun influences house made moonshine made with grilled pineapples house made moonshine it's highly it's highly illegal may or may not exist in our bag back at the hotel I don't know yes see now I can blame it on my sous chef yeah okay okay wow so but that's not your restaurant so to speak it could be your I'm talking about picking up 
your your knives yeah. and planting yourself in a in sure. another restaurant. Yeah. Do you see that? There is, hard um, to leave. Uh, there's five of us as partners in that one. Um, but I tell you, there's the Brennans have always been very kind to me, and I feel like if there's anybody graduating from Commander's Palace and wanting to jump out and do his own thing, that person would get snapped up pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and so we have some opportunities. On numerous occasions, they're like, you know, Tori, we've been here for decades and decades, and they don't know if Commander's Palace has ever been run any better. Tori, hats yeah. off. Really? Yes, yeah, so we're just doing record numbers. Um, and, you know, to follow in the footsteps of Paul Perdome and, and Emerald, for me, it's about relationships. It's about friendship. And we happen to be serving great, great food, too. And there's nobody else on the planet that I trust and respect more than them. For me, it's the Brennans are like family. Great people. I think on that note, um, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. But before we leave, one more question. Sure. Do you have a philosophy, the core of Tory McPhail? That is a big question. It is. That is a big question for sure. Um, I, I, uh, All right, I, let me try this. If I say food, give uh-huh. me give me a word. Perfection. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you're tough to work for. <laughs> that's that's. If I say kitchen, what do you think? Quiet. Mm. Clean. New Orleans. It's a fun town. With that, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Jack Insley and Heritage Radio, and we're signing off. And see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.